Welcome to Indie Thinker with Reed Huberman. You're about to make the jump from the dishonest mainstream media into free and independent thought from key thought leaders on the subjects of culture, causes, politics, and faith. Thanks so much for watching or listening to Indie Thinker with Reed Huberman. Of course, you can watch us on YouTube and you can listen to us anywhere that you can uh, get your podcast. Uh, if you've been enjoying this show, if it's been a blessing to you, if you feel like you're more informed after having listening, listened to these episodes, please do us a huge favor. Please rate, review, like, and subscribe. It will be a huge favor to us, uh, to myself, uh, with all the effort that we're trying to invest into these podcasts, if we can reach more people, and that will help us do exactly that. So as you probably know, at this point in time, we're taking the month of July off and we're doing the best of. So this week, we're going to be doing the best of of cause guests. Now, some of you may be even thinking to yourself, what, what do you mean by cause? What we mean is that whenever we bring on a cause guest, that this is somebody who has a certain cause that they're living for, that they've devoted their life to. Um, and we've had some amazing guests with some amazing causes. And we want to inform you guys about these causes so that you can get behind them, so that you can support these people, and so that you will know about some of the great heroic things that are going on in the world. So uh, without further ado, I want to jump right into this. Um, perhaps some of my, you know, the guests that I like listening to the most are probably these cause guys. They are the modern day heroes of uh, of our of our generation. So uh, I, I really want to share this with you, and I think you're going to like this episode. So without further ado, the best of causes. Okay, so for instance, Pornhub, the biggest uh, pornographic website um, out there right now, just uh, got caught for having child pornography on their website. Okay, so, th so this is kind of tying all together with deep state and, and uh, big corporations and all that stuff. Uh, so anyway, they were just caught with having this. And of course, they immediately came out with a good PR campaign and dismissed any knowledge of it. And then conveniently a day later changed their user policy where only verified accounts can upload content. Because point in fact, they were uploading child pornography or allowing people to upload child pornography onto their site. So... Um, now, I'm just even outside of the child pornography thing, I Let's have a concern. There. What's that? Let's stop for a second. Yeah. Why did that happen? Why did that positive change occur? It only happened because good people stood up and asserted themselves and said, this is harmful and bad. Change must come. Mm. And they demanded it. They didn't stay home and wring their hands yeah. and feel sorry for the children. They stood up and said, this is harmful. It's an abomination. It will not stand. We're going to drive this. We will attack you legally, and we will drive this from our nation. That's yeah. what we have to be as Christians. Yeah. We got to get back to this idea. I, I, I don't know if you know Sam Childress or not, or have ever heard of him, the machine gun preacher. But anyway, Sam says this. Um, he's a controversial dude, but he does say this, um, and I love it. He says, before you judge me for what I'm doing, ask yourself, what would you want me to do if it was your kid? Now, I think Christians have to ask themselves this question. If this was your child who was being trafficked, if this was your child who was being abducted, would you want the vast majority of churches to keep on pretending that everything's okay, figure out how to get blessed on a Sunday morning, or would you want this thing to be attacked with every bit of force that we could possibly muster to fight against this incredible evil in our nation? I want to do this right now. I want to ask everybody that's, that's listening to this. Put yourself into the child's space. Now you're the child. You're locked in a dog kennel, literally a dog kennel. And you're kept God knows where. And you're fed only God knows what kind of pathetic scraps. You've got no medical attention. Your body is battered and bruised and neglected, and you're taken out of that cage only to be raped by who, who knows what kind of abusive thug and put back in. That's your existence. Would you not be praying for all your worth that somebody was doing something to get you out of there? Somebody was coming for you, that you weren't forgotten and that people weren't just sitting at home wishing that things were better, that they would actually care enough to do a little something to change your situation 
so that millions more children next year aren't going to be put into the same situation and add to the to the horror add to the suffering wouldn't you hope and pray for somebody to do something and so i say christians let's not just sit at home and wring our hands anymore let's take action we can all write our elected officials we can all get loud in a righteous way and say no more this shall not stand because god cannot bless the united states when we've got the, the fastest growing criminal enterprise on earth is destroying God's precious children. He cannot bless that. And we're complicit by allowing it. It can't thrive that to that degree without elected officials being complicit and being tolerant of it. There, yeah. That's one thing we must not be tolerant of. We've been cry bullied. I like to use the term cry bully for the radical left. They, they want to play the victim, but they're the biggest bullies on the face of the planet. They want to cry bully us into silence so that they get their way. Meanwhile, the children are being absolutely destroyed. So, yes, it's time for us to pull on our big boy pants or big girl pants and, and say, look, you know what? I, can, I have a voice. I'm one of God's children, too. And I say that this has no place in our nation. We're, we're going to put whatever political leverage and pressure on this problem as needed until we drive it from our nation. We have to actually absolutely actively denounce this, repent of it as a nation and drive it from us so that God can once again bless the United States. Because I don't know if you've done a 360 degree visual scan lately, folks, but we are under absolutely diabolical attack mm -hmm. and we're in the process of losing everything. Yeah. Haven't fought hard enough for it. And that's why it's happening and I think uh, it's time to assert ourselves. And again, there's a righteous way to do it. And even the good Lord Jesus Christ himself was capable of grabbing a whip and whipping some money changers and flipping over their tables and drive them out, driving them out of the temple when they were behaving as total reprobates. So if the perfect life of the good Lord Jesus Christ was capable of that, then look at the diabolical abuse we're facing and what would he expect? from us pray about it get deep in the word find your solution and become part of the part of the problem or part of the the the, the solution with us stand up and take action as you feel feel most led but do something yeah absolutely um i in fact people may be surprised especially if you're not a christian but maybe even christians too would be surprised to hear that jesus spoke in pretty audacious terms when it when it uh, pertains to a child. In fact, he said that, uh, paraphrasing here, essentially it's better for you to be drowned than to mess with a child. Um, and th that uh, that if you harm a single hair on one of these little children, you're going to have to deal with me. And so Jesus was really, really tough, especially about little innocent children. Um, and so we got to be too. And and so here's another question kind of dovetailing on that. I, I, I want to try to be fair to especially Christians and just say, um, I think it's that we have been lied to and we've bought into the lie. Now, that may be a pretty pitiful excuse, uh, but, uh, but it's an excuse nonetheless. Yeah, it's been very effective. And, 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 and I've, I've seen it most recently with these lockdowns and with COVID, um, the nonstop incessant media spin and the narratives that we are given for our information um, have a large role to play in kind of some of the way that we docilely stand by. Um, but, but again, we need to push that excuse aside. And let me just give you an example. And I'm going to say something that may be a little bit controversial here, but it's undeniably true. Um, so we've heard uh, throughout this uh, throughout 2020, uh, we've heard about systemic racism. If I've heard it on the news media at one time, I've heard it a billion times. And I personally have an opinion here. Uh, I believe the term systemic racism is a carefully crafted phrase to do absolutely nothing. In fact, I believe if I, if I were to go a little step further, I would su suggest that the phrase was created uh, to intentionally do nothing so that it can monetize the plight of black people in America. 
Um, I don't, I, because at the end of the day, let me prove that real quick. At the end of the day, if you're going to talk about systemic racism, what do you have to talk about? Well, you have to talk about policies that are racist. So maybe you want to talk about redlining or something like that. So why is the conversation systemic racism and not redlining, right? Why is the conversation maybe even further defund the police rather than to actually train the police or to equip the police or try to help the police deescalate or wh whatever the case may be? But the biggest hypocrisy of all of this stuff that's being shoved down our throat, specifically with Black Lives Matter, is that there is such a thing as slavery that still exists in the world. So now we're chasing ghosts, the ghosts of systemic racism in America, when there are actually people around the world who you have helped uh, get out of real, true, blue, genuine slavery. There are black women and men children, babies who are right now, who are literal slaves. Slavery has not ended for those who have been sticking their head in the sand in America, especially. Um, slavery has not ended. So it's, it's extraordinary to me that there is this deafening silence from everyone on the left, and especially in, in corners like with Black Lives Matter, uh, maybe even feminist organizations when we have women who are being abused and raped and treated as slaves to the tune of approximately 25 million or even more slaves in the United States. I'm just wondering what you make of the deafening silence on the left when it comes to, to slavery in our nation and around the world. Well, it's orchestrated. Again, I, I talked about who owned the mainstream news media, so they're going to bomb us with those lies 24 seven as part of that um, campaign of ideological subversion. I encourage everybody write down this name, Yuri Bezmenov, Y-U-R-I Bezmenov, B-E-Z-M-A-N-O-V, I believe it is. Go on YouTube and look at his lectures. He speaks very powerfully because he was a defected Russian KGB agent who knew what their campaign was. And he talks about the ideological subversion and he trains uh, America. And he, he was speaking in the 70s and 80s here in the United States about it very powerfully. Sadly, we did not listen to the degree that we should. But he's talking yeah. about Russia's campaign to attack our culture and everything that made us strong from within. Our Judeo-Christian values that, that unite us and cause us to understand what we're about and why our culture is precious to us, our, our patriotism, the core family unit, on and on and on. Everything that made the United States, our hard work ethic, everything that made us so strong and insurmountable as an enemy, they could not beat us with tanks, planes, and guns. So they decided very systematically, deliberately to come and conduct a psychological campaign to attack our culture to take over the United States without firing a single shot. They wrote their game plan out. We had it as, late, as early as 1958, maybe before that, but it was read aloud to Congress in 1963. So do a search on the 45 communist goals. You just have to uh, type those three words, the 45 communist goals, and you'll find lists of it. There's things in there like uh, condone violent rioting and protests as legitimate forms of grievance for special interest groups. Yeah. Uh, there are things in there like take over both political parties, take over the news media, take over academia to begin conditioning the youth for socialism and communism. Everything that we're seeing playing out in our country that don't make sense to us, when yeah. we watch it, we're like, why are we doing that? That's counterproductive. This is a nightmare. It's because we already have the, the, the commies playbook. Yeah. The, the mainstream news media is reading straight from it, poisoning us with, with uh, the, the, the rhetoric and the propaganda to keep us from taking action in our own best interest. That's why I say we cannot sustain that, this, that level of deceit indefinitely we have to do something about the mainstream news media but that's that's what's going on we're we're being turned against our own best interest from a systematic bombardment by a news media that's owned by our enemies that's what's yeah. going on that's why a lot of christians don't understand to stand up and fight back they're being conditioned to be tolerant of every single thing that that destroys our children destroys our freedom and liberties destroys our, our ability to gather and worship um, but if you realize what's behind it, you realize you need to do the exact opposite, stand up and beat those uh, things back. 
Yeah. And those, those corporations that are lying to us off the air, get uh, better people on the air, uh, fix our educational system to, to train the, the children and the youth on the damages, you know, over a hundred million people systematically murdered in genocide campaigns by big government um, sponsored genocide by communist and socialist governments, 25 countries in the last century. I mean, yeah. our youth aren't being taught those things anymore. It's being very systematically kept from them for a specific reason to undermine us. And so we've got to fix those things. If we are to be free and our children and grandchildren are to have any prayer of being free. Cause right now, We've gotten so soft and so complacent. Everything that we hold precious and sacred is being taken from us by the ravenous left. Yeah, absolutely. I, I, I think that's a great point and uh, kind of will bring us to our next point. Um, I, I want to take some time to kind of try to take the blinders off of people so uh, so that we can't any longer use the mainstream media as an excuse for why we don't understand what's, what's going on. So if you would, um, even though... Uh, this may be uh, kind of unsettling for some people. I want you to take us into Contraland. Um, I want you to take us not only into the documentary, but also to the world of sex trafficking and just share some of your experiences there, some of what you've seen out there and what is happening to children uh, in the United States. I, I, I think that's important, but then also to um, around the world. Well, what we learned in the filming of Contraland and our investigations already is that there are so many people that are in on child trafficking. What it is, and, and I think this is what why God put this on my heart so overwhelmingly that I couldn't look away from it, is because it is the it's the spiritual power base of the global elite, the radical left. All of those attacking our president and attacking our constitution and our country have some sort of tie to pedophilia in the child trafficking that services that that perversion. And at the, again, at the core of it, it's it's spiritual. It's evil. It's a the frontline clash between good and evil is over the children. The rest of those stuff that we're seeing are all symptoms of that that clash between good and evil. But at the very core of it is the, the children. And the, the belief is that uh, to defile, you know, and the, and the, the scripture about uh, the millstone, it's better to have a millstone thrown or a large millstone tied around your neck and thrown into the sea than to defile one of God's precious children. Well, they are trying to do exactly that. They're trying to defile God's most precious and innocent. And that's their biggest, deepest, darkest secret. That's what ultimately we learned is going on. So with that, you've got a lot of the politicians up in, in DC, you know, um, complicit in it because they can, they can blackmail each other and, and gain status and power. Or if they'll rape a child on video, then um, the, the powers that be that move the trillions of dollars around can give them you know, 50 or $100 million to help their campaigns or move some chess pieces around to help their career and because they know that they're owned. And uh, so the wealthy elite aren't going to help. They're not going to fund someone like, like you or me who's going to act in good faith. They're going to they're gonna fund somebody who's, who they can own. And they can only own you if they've got evidence on you that they can pull out at any time. And, and let's dig into something. Let's dig in specifically to some of your own experiences, because I think one of the uh, the problems that we still run into with with Christians and maybe just people in general is that we uh, we often dismiss, you know, like I would I would say if I told you in December of 2019 what was about to take place in 2020, almost every single person I know would say, you're nuts. That's never going to happen. They're never going to shut down churches. They're never going to, that global pandemic, that's not going to happen. Uh, rioting and looting in the streets when we're supposed to be quarantining, that's never going to happen. Uh, you know, they would say that's ludicrous, but here it is happening before our very eyes. So let's, uh, so I want you to share some specific stories that you've experienced in some of the things that you've done and in some of the experiences you had. And I'm just going to go ahead, even though this is a grotesque question, I'm going to start it off by just asking this. What's the youngest child that you've ever seen raped i have i haven't seen any children being raped thank god i never want to 
uh, we know of infants, I mean, days old being raped. And, you know, a lot of times it kills them. Uh, uh, there's just no, there's no low to which a lot of these people won't stoop. We put out an ad in our first sting operation. We put out an ad for a 12 year old girl, either 12 or 13 year old girl. I think it was 12. And in a, and it was a local ad. And in 30 days, there were 5,000 responses to that ad to come and rape a 12 year old girl. And um, that was in Connecticut and law enforcement there were like, my God, when we, we arrested, I think five there on that first operation in three days. And they, uh, they said, man, we, we would have never guessed that this many predators. And that was only, that was five arrests with a hundred percent conviction rate. One of whom was a federal agent for the IRS. He had been FBI before. And then uh, went to the Treasury Department, IRS. And, um, you know, so we, we see that there's it, all kinds. It's, you can't look at a pedophile and, and, and judge a book by its cover, really, in that, in that sense. Because evil can find itself into the heart of any weak-charactered man who's not strong uh, with yeah. Jesus Christ. And, uh, Have you been surprised by some of the people that you've seen participate? Oh, yeah. Yeah, one guy was an elder in the FLDS church, and he was a, a bus driver in Utah. And, uh, you know, we'd gotten notification from his family members that, yeah, he raped children, lots of children all the time. And he came to rape two girls in our sting operation. And uh, we arrested him. He should have been put away for life and um, never to rape again. But my understanding is that a a judge decided, oh, he's old. What good? What harm could he do? And let him uh, back out fairly early, even though we were convicted. It had him for like thirty years to life, yeah. Due to the the evidence, the overwhelming mountain of evidence we had, complete conviction. So we cannot have crooked judges releasing child rapists, folks. We've got to we've got to drop the hammer on these judges. And George Soros, they won't let anybody say it like newt gingrich, newt gingrich got cut off on fox news when he started revealing to the american populace all of whom much most of whom already know that george soros funds district attorneys uh, around the country he funds their campaigns uh, when they are uh, of his mindset that they would not ever prosecute child sex crimes and a lot of them you quite frankly would not prosecute um, arson looting um, riot type of uh, crimes either because they're radical leftists and they're on George, they're on board with whatever George Soros is uh, dark and evil, wicked campaign and his agenda is. So we, man, there was an active duty army recruiter that came. There was uh, man, there was a family. There was a man that was husband, father that was up skiing with his, you know, wife and, and two children. He came down with in a minivan, left his wife and children up at the ski resort, came down in the minivan with two little car seats in the back. Mm-hmm. And, uh, you know, and he tried to run when he realized he was, he was caught. And uh, of course he didn't get very far, but uh, it, it was, it was heartbreaking to see how many people had, had families that they hadn't considered, you know, wife, children at home. You know, we've, we've had several of these perpetrators, families call us and thank us for arresting them. And that's something I, I didn't expect. That was a, a surprise. It was kind of a heavy thing, uh, very emotionally impacting to have somebody's wife or children say, hey, you know what? Um, thank you for stopping him. And uh, we didn't know. And uh, you know, it's just, you got to do it. You got to stop the predator from destroying, you know, countless children. And here's something that is important to know. The average number of children that a, that a pedophile rapes throughout their lifetime is 70. The best they can estimate it's 70 because some of them work them. Well, many of them like to work themselves into positions of unsupervised access to children like a coach, Sunday school teacher, 
scout leader, those kinds of positions. And then they abuse those positions and ruin the trust, the public trust by raping the children. But sometimes they never get caught and it's hundreds of children, two or 300 children. And some get caught very early on. So the average is 70 children each. So every child predator we arrest and put in a cell to rape no more saves countless children from being raped and destroyed. And this is the real issue. And the reason there's resistance to these kind of issues is that when we look statistically at what police brutality is doing in America, and, and we, when we right. look statistically at what abortion is doing in America, there is no comparison, right. empirically right. speaking. That is not to say that we don't need to even have conversations about police brutality in church, whatever. Fine, let's do that, fine. Let's have a conversation about the merits of Black Lives Matter and their Marxist leanings and whether or not we want to get behind a church just so that we can post our black square or have our uh, serve team members wear Black Lives Matter face masks and show how woke we are to the to yeah, Instagram. Yeah, right. uh, it, it's not, that's, okay, fine. Let's have that conversation, but let's have it proportionally. Let's have that conversation also in the context of the greater, more, more genocidal, which is what we Christians like generally believe, uh, more genocidal issue of abortion, which most churches want to remain entirely silent about yeah well and, and black lives matter doesn't believe the black lives matter so right. if you're listening to this let me be very clear black lives matter doesn't give two effing bleeps about black lives i, I i'm, I'm going to speak as clearly right now as i will in this entire episode this needs to be very clear yeah. black lives matter incorporated doesn't give two flying bleeps about black lives. And I'll give you four reasons. The first and most important read, they're pro-abortion. Before Black Lives Matter got repopularized after George Floyd, because they were around before that, you remember, it was in the wake of the um, uh, Ferguson uh, or something like that. Um, uh, the, the killing of, what was his name? Um, oh, Michael Brown. Michael Brown. That's when Black Lives Matter got launched. By the way, it was launched on a lie. The entire movement and organization was launched on a lie. According to Barack Obama's Justice Department. Exactly. Thank you, Reed. That, according, uh, allegedly, he put his hands up and said, don't shoot. And so that became this shirt, right? It became this saying, hands up, don't shoot. Complete BS was a total lie. He bum rushed the cop and tried to take his handgun out of the officer's belt. Uh, okay, well, now you're fully justified to shoot that man. And that would hold true across racial lines. You don't get to try to take the handgun from an officer. I'm sorry, that's not how this works. Right. And that's true for all races. So, so firstly, the, the movement and organization launched on a lie, on a complete lie. Secondly, they're pro-abortion. They removed their pro-abortion language from their website read right after George Floyd. Why did they remove it? They probably recognized it wasn't such a good PR uh, strategy to have all this stuff about abortion and killing black babies on a website called blacklivesmatter.com. Um, I viewed their website. I should have taken screenshots, but I, I viewed their website multiple times. I did research on them in, uh, in 2017, 2018, all before George Floyd. Crazy reproductive justice euphemisms on their website. Okay, they removed it. Uh, Alicia Garza, one of the co-founders of Black Lives Matter, read, teamed up with Cecile Richards a couple years ago. Who was Cecile Richards? The former president of Planned Parenthood and, and a white lady, by the way. So if you want to adopt the premises of critical race theory, you'd actually be forced to condemn Planned Parenthood because it was led by a white racist who oversaw the greatest slaughter of unarmed black lives in the world. Anyways, you're not supposed to say that. So they <laughs> team up to start an organization called Supermajority. You can go do, there's still an organization, you can find them. So Supermajority's goal was to train up 2 million young women to be political abortion activists leading up to the 2020 election to get rid of Orange Man Bat, to get rid of Trump. So you've got the founder of an organization called Black Lives Matter teaming up with the, the, the biggest murderer of unarmed black lives, Planned Parenthood, um, to train people to defend abortion, the number one killer of black lives. Yeah. So black America accounts for 30% of the American public, you know this. So what's half of that? So, um, so, so six and a half percent um, would be women. Um, are all of those women of childbearing age? No. So six and a half percent of women in America are, are black women in America. Uh, let's say three percent of them are of childbearing age. So three percent of the American public read obtains 37 percent of the abortions. Yeah. Um, this is all through through the CDC. This is all available online. So three percent of the American public responsible for 37 percent of the abortions. Planned Parenthood knows this uh, and that they get a disproportionate amount of their income from such a small sample size of, of the American citizenry. And so according to a study by Protecting Black Life, 
they put 79% of their surgical abortion facilities within walking distance of majority black neighborhoods, fulfilling Margaret Sanger's dream, the racist eugenicist founder of Planned Parenthood, to control and decrease the black population. Okay, so Black Lives Matter doesn't care about black lives because the number one killer of black lives is abortion. According to the Washington Post, 12 unarmed men, 12 to 14 unarmed uh Black men were shot by police officers in 2019. Half of them were still dangerous. They just didn't have a firearm. They were still attacking the cop. So being most generous, you had about six unarmed black men who were shot by police officers in 2019. And based off of that number, we're supposed to say America is systemically racist. What about 370,000 unarmed black lives, Reed, who are womb lynched, who are lynched in the womb every year? Um, and Planned Parenthood kills about 1,000 black babies a day. Okay, yeah, or the abortion industry does, uh, writ large. So Black Lives Matter doesn't care about black lives because they're the number one killer of black lives. They don't care about black lives because they're silent on the black on black crime. Black on black crime is actually the second number one killer of blacks after abortion. It's, it's other black people killing other black people. By the way, just so people don't accuse me of being a racist, the same thing's true of whites. The most people who kill white people are white people. So it's just it's just a it's just sort of a statistical reality. So they're silent on black on black crime, which is significantly more dangerous to black lives than white police officers. They're also silent on the fatherlessness rate, which is the number one predictor of of future crime and of whether you'll end up incarcerated. Where are the black fathers? They're silent on that. And lastly, well, hey, just to interject, they're not t technically silent on that because they actually said something and they also erased that from their website too, but they don't believe in the nuclear family. This to disrupt the Western contrived notion of the nuclear family. What does that mean? Fathers in the home. It means mothers and fathers. So they've actually said essentially that they don't like black fathers. So, but black <laughs> lives, black fathers matter uh, as well. And then lastly, um, they actually oppose school choice. Did you know this, Reed? They oppose school choice, like most Democrats do. Uh, school choice is the best way for for children in low performing schools to get into better schools. And guess, and and in the the worst performing schools tend to be in large Democrat run cities. Where do most Black Americans live? In large Democrat run cities. So the best thing to help Black lives is to support the choice of their parents to put them in a different area of the city that they don't live in, in a better school. And they oppose that as well. So listeners, listen, wake up, okay? Black Lives Matter, it's just a linguistic cudgel because it sounds good, Black Lives Matter, who could be opposed to that? It's a linguistic cudgel to hit you over the head over and over and over again. And so if you say you're opposed to the mission of Black Lives Matter, they say, what, are you a racist? You don't believe Black Lives Matter? No, I actually do believe Black Lives Matter, which is why I'm pro-life, I'm for school choice, I want more black fathers in the home, and I and I want the black-on-black -black violence to end, all of the things that Black Lives Matter is on the other side of. So that we just need to say that very clear, because yeah. woke, cowardice pastors like Carl freaking Lentz, who cheats on his wife, and, and goes on to the, and goes on to uh, the show with uh, is it Whoopi Goldberg or whatever uh, the View, oh, the view. And, yeah, and, the is, view. and is asked about abortion and he says it's a private issue I would just ask hey, yeah, yeah whatever God doesn't care God loves you what no matter what these kind of woke pastors who say we need to talk about Black Lives Matter none of them talk against abortion so yeah. anyways that's my All soapbox. Right. All right. Well, it's a good soapbox. So before we jump into kind of the uh, the opposition argument, I, I want to just ask you real quick, because the biggest question that because of how bold you are and how outspoken you are and how, which is so crazy to me, how seriously you actually take the death of babies, which should be such a given for Christians. Um, the the biggest uh, question that I found people in my peer circle where you had spoken, the biggest question they had was this, is uh, what about the backlash and and did they experience backlash? And I'll just be totally honest. There were, there were some people that I said, did you feel like as Seth was talking that there might've been people who got up because they were uncomfortable with the, the honesty that was coming from the pulpit that morning? Um, and so I, I can't help but just wanna ask you that question and, and just because of curiosity. Have you experienced backlash um, from specifically, because uh, I can understand this from people in the culture, but I mean specifically from Christians in churches that you know of uh, when when you've spoken about this issue? Yeah, sometimes I do. Uh, recently, God's just happened to align me with brave pastors who have exercised such wonderful shepherding over their flock for so long that their people were already primed and mature enough to hear my message. But I've spoken in some churches, Reed, where I've had pastors tell me, uh, hey, brother, so glad to have you here. We're pro-life. Just don't talk about politics, okay? 
Uh, and, and I always tell those pastors, you know, I like to say, oh, so, hey, I just want to ask you a question. So you, you, it's, it's 1858. Stephen Douglas, the racist Democrat, has just announced his run against Abraham Lincoln for the 1860 election. And uh, you're a pastor of a church in the South where slavery is legal. And Frederick Douglass approaches you and he says he'd like to preach a sermon on how the church should be the ones ending slavery in this country because human beings are created in the image of God. And you tell Frederick Douglass, amen, brother, so grateful for your voice. We're definitely an anti-slavery church. Um, just don't talk about politics, okay? Yeah. Um, what an asinine thing to say, Reed. The Democratic Party was the party of lynchings, the party of slavery, and you had a racist Democrat who wanted to protect states' rights to protect slavery, I, running against Abraham Lincoln, a flawed and perfect man who was quite incredible, who wanted to end slavery. And you're telling a black leader who wants to end slavery that he can preach about abortion, uh, preach about slavery and the role of the church to end slavery, but that he can't talk about the way you end it? which yeah. is through politics. What a stupid thing to say. So yeah, so I, I get pastors who say that don't talk about politics. So that, that just means they don't understand what self-governance means. They don't understand what 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 stewarding our gift here in America actually means. But yeah, I get backlash. I, I get messages, of course, you know, through Instagram and Facebook of like, ah, 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 you're such a disgrace. And I had a couple of people on my Facebook from Calvary Chapel Chattanooga say this was a horrifically inappropriate message for Mother's Day. And I actually said that to Frank Reed and he was like, well, that guy would have said that any other Sunday too. <laughs> like, hey, amen, dude. I freaking love you. So, yeah. I mean, your pastor is just a hero of mine. What, what a man among Me men. Me too. Um, and those are the kind of leaders and pastors we need in this moment more so than any other time. So I get that backlash, but I don't really care. You know, I just don't really care. I just take the Bonhoeffer approach, which is essentially to say that if you can't speak out against and stand to end the genocide of babies, then you, like German churches who allowed the Holocaust, might be possessed of a cheap grace. Yeah. Which is, in other words, is to say a Jesus you, you've created in your own image. Mm, I love that. And uh, and I do got to mention this just as a side note, we don't have to talk about it, but uh, as far as the the use of politics in terms of, uh, maybe you might even say gospel issues, but just in terms of the use of Christians in politics and moral civil responsibility, um, they uh, pastors who deny the power of politics or the use of politics for for uh, for religious purposes or for Christian purposes don't understand theology either. They uh, because Augustine said something that I think you'll find fascinating. He said that um, that that Christians should use the spoils of Egypt for the glory of God. And so what he means by that is he's talking about the 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 treasures that came from Egypt eventually became the foundation for the building of the temple. And what he was actually saying is is that Christians should use secular education as a means to help themselves become better gospel preachers. Um, so you might, he's not necessarily talking about seminary or anything like that, but he's just talking about how we don't need to discount everything in the world as just the material world. Let's push that away. Um, but we can use anything at our disposal for the glory of God, because in fact, there is no place on the planet where the glory of God should not be felt. Because you know what? who owns politics? It's not the right or the left. It's Jesus. You know who owns. Uh, you know who owns every single child that's born um, and unborn. Uh, unfortunately, Jesus. Uh, he he is the head over everything. And and we don't understand our own Bible if we don't understand that Jesus deserves headship over every area of our life. Um, and that's certainly true of the abortion well, issue. Well, politics, read, is just an opportunity to love neighbor. Yeah. Um, this should not be complex. So, so um, John Foster Dulles, um, on he is former Secretary of State, uh, had this great line in in May of 1954. He was asked by a Danish student um, uh, of this idea of uh, politics and loving neighbor and the role of the Christian. And former Secretary of State John Foster Dulles stated that neighborly love in political actions means loving others based on the brotherhood that was created with God the Father of all. It means that the political power of any government must be considered an opportunity not to favor individuals, but to do well for all. Mm -hmm. And so for Christians who were told that the second greatest commandment is to love your neighbor as yourself, politics just becomes another, another outpouring of that, another opportunity to love neighbor. And so how should we love a neighbor that it's legal to kill? Well, if it was legal to kill me, Reed, while I would appreciate you raising funds to take care of my family if I was murdered, I would really appreciate you passing laws to protect me and say that people can't kill me. Um, so the best way to love the pre-born is to make it illegal to kill them. And the way you do that in America is through passing laws, and that means getting political.
All right. So with that being said, let's uh, let's flip the script a little bit and then let's jump into some of these things. I want to, if we have time at the end, I want to ask you about uh, the Phil Vischer video, who's the VeggieTales guy, um, oh when, <laughs> and what he said about abortion, just because I, I think that's fascinating. So if we have time, we'll get to that. All right. But first of all, um, women have a moral right to decide to do with their bodies what they want to do with their bodies. Uh, and I'm just going to throw a side note here before we talk about that. Um, I don't know if you've ever seen Sticks and Stones. Uh, it's incredibly vulgar. It's a Dave Chappelle comedy special. But what he says, uh, what he says about abortion, is just absolutely fantastic. It's fire. So, um, all right. So, 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 it, 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 when a Christian speaks to somebody and stands up, um, you know, on their two on their two legs and says, um, "I'm pro life," and they say, "Well, what do you? Th- why do you think you have the right to tell a woman what to do with her body?" How do we respond to that? Yeah, they gosh, man, these 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 like overly used phrases have just become um they've just become like a <laughs> they've just become like a linguistic liturgy of the left. I mean, these things are so it's like it's like their catechism read. I mean, these things are just become so overly said and used. And that's really what people need to understand. Like the religion of the culture of death is secular progressivism, which is based on secular humanism, which is based on relativism. And this is the underlying religion and worldview of every Marxist of every communist regime ever. So this is not an alternative politics, it's an alternative religion. People need to wake up to that. And so this is really just like a, it's like a it's like a liturgy, it's like a linguistic liturgy. It's it's essentially just the catechists of of the left. And so they have these 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 chants that they just participate in over and over and over again. My body, my choice, bodily autonomy. Okay, so listen, the body in your body is not your body, lady. Uh, because if you were pregnant with a boy, you don't have a penis. Okay, I mean this is this should be so self evident. Uh, if we're told my body, my choice, right, which assumes how many bodies are involved, read one. My body, my choice. It assumes one body is involved. Is that true that one body is involved? Well, if you care about science, you'd have to say no. The science of embryology says from the moment of conception, you're a distinct, living, and whole human being. And so if the mother is, is if the body's in her body is actually just her body, then we'd be forced to say that pregnant women have 20 fingers and 20 toes, two <laughs> brains, two hearts, two different DNA codes exist, existing simultaneously, potentially two different blood types existing simultaneously. Oh, and if she's pregnant with a boy, now pregnant women have male genitalia. Now, of course, at this point, the leftist might say, yes, you're That's right. Welcome possible. to UC Berkeley to your lesbian dance theory major where men are women and women are men. No, no, no. Women do not have penises as much as the okay. left would like to tell you that they can't. So let me let me push back and say, okay, so um, obviously this is predicated upon a presupposition then that life does not begin at conception. So they're going to say, no, that's not a life in my womb. That's like a cluster of cells, right? So they'll look at life on Mars. Then we'll say, yeah, some of them will actually say it is. To make it even worse, many pro-choicers today read, they admit that the unborn is biologically human. That it's that it is fully human, that it uh, its parents are human, therefore it's human, but it's not a person. So the rights of the mother supersede the rights of the child. And that's even more disturbing. That's that's disgusting. Okay, so that kind of that kind of to the side, because that seems easier to me to kind of to kind of talk about. But what about uh, the people who want to deny the scientific reality of a life inside of a womb? Right, right, right. right. Yeah. So, I mean, these people were three things. They were either asleep in junior high biology. They were eating weed brownies and were too high (laughs) to pay attention to what their teacher was saying in junior high biology. Or thirdly, and more likely, they've been indoctrinated with anti-science bigotry from our state schools um, that should have been teaching the reality of embryology. Embryology, study of the embryo. What's an embryo? A human being at a very early stage in their physical development. The science of embryology for decades, Reed, has known, taught, and communicated that human life begins at the moment of conception. The law of biogenesis states that all living things reproduce after their own kind. So dogs can only beget dogs, cats can only beget cats, a a male and a female can only beget another human being. This is undisputed scientific fact. And not because I say so, by the way, but because abortionists and pro-abortion activists and pro-abortion philosophers admit this. Um, Peter Singer, for example, at Princeton University, who defends, by the way, who defends killing babies up to one year outside of the womb because he doesn't believe they're persons. So the arguments that pro-choicers use to deny the personhood to the unborn, Peter Singer is honest enough, Reed, to admit 
that that same litmus test for personhood would also deny infants the right to personhood. So yeah. he's he's actually intellectually honest enough to take his ideas to their horrific, heinous, logical conclusion. Um, and so we understand that human beings begin at the moment of conception. So they're not partially human. They're, it's not like they're becoming a human being, Reed. They are actually fully human. Yeah. And Peter Singer will admit that. He'll say that, that yeah, the science is clear that the unborn is fully human, um, but it, do, it doesn't matter. Um, and so this is plain undisputed at this point. But you have many pro-choice woke leftists in the culture, particularly of the millennial and Gen Z generation, who will just say it's not a human being. Um, but you're seeing that less and less because it's it's just so blatantly false um, that now they're starting to admit that it's a human, but it, that, that it doesn't matter. You can kill them anyways. So, so the way you communicate that, the way you respond to that, that it's not really a human being is literally, I mean, you could just buy any embryology textbook, um, yeah. and, and show them. If you want to put a link in your show notes, I can send it to you as well. Read if you Google, uh, when does human life begin? And then you enter the word Princeton, uh, Princeton university has this great, uh, PDF on their website. And it's all it is, is it's a collection of citations and quotes from dozens of different embryologists, neonatologists, biologists, and embryology textbooks, all saying that human life begins at the moment of conception. Wow. Um, and so to deny that really today, it's just, you just look really stupid. I mean, it's <laughs> yeah. just so plainly clear, so. I just have another question for you because I think that people will want to know about this as well. So you're not actively going into these areas as armed combatants, okay? But uh, you do carry arms or people carry arms to protect themselves from time to time. Now, there's this moment in this in the documentary that I just think is probably one of the most powerful slash painful moments in the whole film. And it's when you're speaking to a family there. Uh, I think it was outside of Mosul, but uh, in Iraq. And uh, you're talking to them. They're so glad to see you. They go away. Uh, and they're maybe 100 yards down the road from you guys. And they come across an ISIS landmine and they're, and they're blown up and, and the people that are with them. Um, and, and right there in that moment, you have this very raw, very real um, feeling about what you want to do to ISIS. You want to get rid of them. You want to terminate them. You want to, you want you want them to be ended. And and that resonates with me because I can only imagine what it was like to be sitting there talking to little children, speaking to a family, minding their own business, who were then blown up by a landmine. But then there's also something else that resonates with me is you have this very, very tender moment later that night where you're angry, you're upset, and you take some time, you open up God's word, and immediately, without trying to, you turn to that passage where it says, vengeance is mine, saith, saith the Lord. And then you go back to one of your team members and you, and you essentially apologize for the way that you responded there. Now, first of all, I think that that takes Jesus. If anybody doesn't believe in miracles that's watching or, or listening, that response uh, takes takes the strength of Christ and, and God inside of you to make that response, because I can only imagine how frustrated and angry you must feel trying to help these people and then them just to be senselessly killed or attacked like that. Um, so, But that does bring me to this question of kind of uh, something that you address in the film a little bit, and, and I've heard you answer it uh, multiple different times, and I just love your answer to it, so I'd love for you to share it here with us and kind of what your stance is on being an armed combatant or at least uh, an, an armed uh, relief worker and when force is necessary. Kind of that balance even, I, maybe this is a crude way to say it, that balance between being a soldier and a missionary because that's two thoughts that people can't really hold together in their head. And since the whole basis of this uh, this podcast is to really help people think about challenging things and things that help us deepen our faith uh, and just deepen our intellectual process, how have you been able to balance those two worlds? Uh, and maybe they're not as separate as we think they are, but but the, the two worlds of being a missionary and being a soldier. First, I'd like to say what, what you mentioned. When that little girl was killed, which I had a connection with that little girl, it was like my daughter was killed. And I mm -hmm. thought, I can't live with myself. I don't do something about this. Yeah. And it's justice to go after these guys and hunt them down and kill them until I can't. Isn't that right? And it felt right. And I prayed, God, show me the truth of what happened today. And I was sure 
along with sharing the love of Jesus and giving out food and medicine, we're going to kill as many ISIS as we can. Not because we're Superman, not because we're righteous, because it's so wrong. But the next morning, when I opened my Kindle about 5.30 in the morning before we started off with the Iraqi army again, three times in a row, at random, I kept getting the same message. Right. Revenge belongs to God. It doesn't say there's no revenge. It says revenge belongs to God. And right then, I realized I was trying to take revenge. I said, Jesus, forgive me. I give up revenge. And it was like a 2,000-pound weight lifted off my shoulder. And what you just said was only Jesus could do it. I didn't even know I had that weight on me. I thought it was justice. But what's the difference between revenge and justice is love. Because love not only frees you from all that hate that, that comes with revenge and the spiritual um, damage that comes to you from revenge, it gives a chance for the perpetrator or the person that hurt you to change. And if they don't, they don't. That's their business. But then when you decide about the punishment or your reaction, it's also bound up in what's best for them, not just what's best for me, what's best for them, because I want you to change. And I think at that point, when you've been hurt badly, for me anyways, only God could change my heart. Yeah, I was done. But he did it. He did it. And that's, a, that's one reason I follow him, because he's supernatural. It's not just a philosophy or psychology. It's something it's spiritual. It's bigger. And I need to keep asking for that help. So we... Freedom Rangers go to the front lines where we're invited and sometimes find ourselves face to face with the enemy shooting at us. And we have a rule. We don't arm our teams. You can get your own guns. Like the Middle East, we almost everybody has a weapon. They're all over the place. In Burma, very many people don't because there's not that many available. But we're not pacifists. We're also not there to fight. And we tell people it's up to you. You and God have to decide if you're going to fight or not. But you're not to go attack the enemy. If the enemy attacks the people you're serving and they can't run, you can't leave them. And at that moment, you got to decide, I'm not going to leave them. I'm going to die with them or I'm going to fight back. That's up to you. you got to pray. And I, in my own experience, every situation is different. And, you know, just this morning I was praying to God about my own. I, I joined the army for a reason. I liked it. I like violence. I like things that go boom. Yeah. And. But I just pray this morning, Lord, let me have no bloodlust. Let me have no love of violence. Take it. I give it away. I don't want that. I want to serve you first all the time, no matter what is going on. And so I had experience in the Battle of Mosul multiple times. So ISIS came around the corner one time, came around the corner very close to us, seven yards, close to four yards. They're shooting first. We didn't see them. Shot my friend six times, shot me once in the arm. And I just said, God, help me. And I fought back and was able to stop them. And another time, we were, there was a, a liberation of a village. The Kurds did it. We're there with them. Americans did airstrike, killed ISIS, but accidentally killed a family. Eight family members died from about three months old up to a 60-year-old. The whole village was out there. They're glad they were liberated, but they're, so what's liberation? Your whole family's killed. They were furious at America. And I was an American there. American Army was not there. I was with the Kurds. And I looked. And my translator said, Dave, don't go over there because you're an American, they're gonna kill you. And I prayed about it. I thought, no, I'm an ambassador of Jesus. I have to go there. So I had an AK-47 and ammunition and all that, hand grenades. I took it all off, put the AK down, but I had a Glock pistol. I stuck it on the back of my pants, stuck my shirt over it. I don't know. I just didn't know what was gonna happen. And I walked up to these guys and I began to apologize for this American airstrike. And I said, I'm sure it's a mistake. We do, it's against our law to do it. It's against our national character to do it. I probably that pilot was a dad. And if he knew what happened, he'd be heart sick. I'm so sorry. I kept apologizing and looking at these hard eyes. Like, like, like we'd look at someone. Yeah. And finally, I didn't know what to do. I just prayed and I got on my knees and I said, I am so sorry. I have nothing else I can say, but I'm sorry. It's a mistake. And I don't have time to ask my wife and kids for this permission. But right now, I give you permission to kill me. I will not fight you. I have a pistol in the back of my pants. You can pull it out and shoot me with my own pistol. And if you kill me, it doesn't bring back your eight people. And I'm not worth your eight people. I'm just one. But I have nothing left to give you. It's all I can give. And I just was there praying, wondering what would happen. And this, the older brother of the survivor of the family picks me up. And he says, we cannot hate you. We cannot kill you. And we became like a family right then. That was love together. And we cried together for the loss of those kids. And so to me, I tell those two stories because I think sometimes there is a time to try to stop evil physically. 
or by force, and sometimes it's a time to say, I'm not going to fight. You never have to fight, ever have to fight. Never. You can just die, uh, or you can let something happen. So to me, I want always to do what Jesus has me do at this moment, which may be different than what he has you do or someone else do. And, and that's how we are. So we are in the humanitarian gap between the front line where there's fighting and the big relief organizations in the back and refugee camps taking care of people. Because in that gap, there are soldiers and civilians who are killed, wounded, hungry, thirsty, scared that aren't gonna get help sometimes for days until they get back to a rear area where most um, non-governmental organizations work. Now, most of these organizations in the back, they do amazing work, a lot more than we do. And we depend on them, we send people to them. And so I think it's a, it's a partnership in a way, informal, but our roles the very front. Yeah. So with, with all of that being said, uh, and all the things that you're facing in these various countries, uh, I think one of the things that I think is the most unique is that your family is doing some of this with, you know, obviously they're not going into uh, conflicts where there's gunfire and that kind of thing, but your family's by your side. Uh, do they, do they spend most of their time in Burma? Do you guys live most of your time there? Yes. My kids all grew up in Burma. My son, Peter was three weeks old, born in Thailand. And then at the third week, my wife carries him nursing, holding on my backpack, we're going at night, no lights to avoid the Burma army in the jungle. And they've all grown up, you know, being carried by mom and me and then on horses and on foot. And until my daughters are 20 and 18 and just started the first year of college this year, they grew up doing that. Like it'd be like growing up with an Oregon trail. And then in 2015, 14, we went to Sudan. And I remember when we were going into Sudan, which is, was a war zone then in the Nuba Mountains, my little daughter, then little daughter, Sudan said, Daddy, we're not just a family, we're a team. Hmm. And I thought, wow, what a great thing for a dad to hear. And we were bombed every day there. And we'd hide in the caves with the people. And my daughter would run out and film. And I still remember her filming it. And my oldest daughter then was 13. Films, as a plane comes in and bombs us, she films the whole thing and reports like a little reporter. The SAF, Sudanese Armed Forces, just bombed us. Here's the shell fragments. Fortunately, they didn't kill anybody. They're hiding in the cave. I thought, wow. So they've grown up um, with us. And as you said, we don't take them right into where there's a shooting. But they've been mortared. They've been bombed because those things go a long way. And they've helped move wounded people, dead people. And, you know, none of that scares them that much. And... I, I, because I've grown up in it. And I remember one of the first times they saw a badly wounded man and I asked them to go um, hug him, actually. He'd recovered, but he had no eyes, almost his whole face blown off, no hands, just stumps and just holes where his eyes were. It looked pretty hideous. I said, you know, he's healing now. No one's probably touched him, go hug him. And my kids are awesome. This is when they were five and eight and, and 10. And they kind of stiffen like your kids do when they want, don't want to do something. They're going to do it, but they don't like it. You know, that kind of look on their face. I said, hey, kids, that guy is probably someone's dad. He's certainly someone's son. And he was trying to clear a landmine to put on foot and blew his hands and his face off. And, and if that happened to me, your daddy somewhere, would you want someone to touch me? I mean, he's alone here in this little clinic. And they teared up and they said, yeah, daddy, we want someone to help you. I said, what could happen to me? And so then they went over and hugged this guy and he flinched because he hadn't been touched like that. And he still had his tear ducts and his tears came down his face and we all cried. So we grew up together like that. And our kids, um, their first aunts and uncles were Karen and Sean and Kachin. These are tribes in Burma. And now they have aunts and uncles in Syria and in Iraq. So the whole family is in this together. My wife started something called the Good Life Club which yeah. is that outreach to kids and families. And she and my kids lead that. So it's, and it's wonderful because we get to be together. And even right now, as soon as we are done here, we hope to go on another mission to Burma. So we spend our time most of the year for the first 20 years, we're in Burma. But once our missions in Iraq and Syria started, we go back and forth between Burma, Iraq, and Syria like that, and in, in Sudan twice. Yeah, and uh, I, and I just want to emphasize that too. Uh, you call from that passage in John that says that Jesus has come to give us abundant life. You call 
what you guys do um, there with with your children's ministry and ministering to the people, the Good Life Club, that uh, just because abundant is sometimes a hard word to translate, but Good Life Club, and there's it's undeniable. You watch that documentary, you go on your website, Free Burma Rangers, and you see what you guys are doing. You guys are absolutely changing the lives of people who have been run out of their home, had their homes burned down, uh, had their children killed right in front of their eyes, had their uncles and their aunts, and just family members and friends and neighbors and and people who have lost everything you guys are you guys are going in there and and bringing life to people who desperately need um who desperately need hope so it's it's undeniable so uh let's kind of round things out on a positive note and in the uh how many years have you been doing this free burma rangers 26 27 27 years. 27 years. Okay, so in your 27 years, I know you've got a million, but can you pick just one story that really sticks out to you that, uh, that's, a, that's a memorable story for you? Well, like you said, there's many. The first thing I, I, I think of is the rescue of a little girl named Demoa, and it's in the movie as well. In fact, I, I wrote a book called Do This for Love. Oh, yeah. Free Burma Ranger, Pablo Mosel, and that's Demoa right there. It's this little girl. And you can get this on Amazon or somewhere. Anyhow, that's that little girl, Demoa. I'm carrying her. This is the Battle of Mosul on June the 2nd, 2017. And what happened was, as ISIS was being defeated, first on the east side, then the west, that the fighting got more and more intense in the, in the city. Um, by that time, I'd been wounded four times. One of my team members had been killed, two others wounded, and a lot of my Iraqi friends killed. And ISIS started to shoot families. We came out to this one street. They'd killed 150 people. And men, women, children, babies all shot dead laying in the street. But there was a little girl hiding under her dead mother. We could see her across the street, kind of catty corners of 150 yards long where she was. There were dead bodies right in front of us, but she was down at the end. And she's hiding under her dead mom, which is why she was not, not dead herself. Other kids were dead, babies, infants, people in wheelchairs shot. And we looked and thought, oh my gosh, there's a kid there. How can we get her? Because ISIS didn't just have rifles and machine guns and grenade launchers. They had anti-tank systems set up in buildings down the road in an old hospital. You couldn't even get an armored vehicle down there. I remember just praying and praying. And I remember my chaplain, Paul Bradley, calling me from Thailand and, and praying with me and my daughter and family. Because my daughter was driving one of the armored ambulances back and forth from the front, back to the casual collection point with my wife and my other daughter and son were. And our team was there. And we prayed, and finally, I had a good relationship with the American Army, a general named General Scott Eflant, wonderful Christian man. And between him and the Iraqis, we had the Iraqis coordinate with the Americans to give us smoke. And so we got smoke, and the Iraqis gave me a tank. In fact, the first thing we give me a tank, they said, there's no way. The tank will get destroyed. We don't have any tanks left. And I said, please. And then the Ameri I just told, I told the Americans, I'm dropping the smoke. And the Americans started dropping the smoke. I said, please, look, you can do it. And he goes, no. And I said to the Iraqi commander, if Allah told you to do it, would you do it? He goes, yes. And I grabbed his hand and I said, dear Allah, please tell this commander what to do in Isa's name, in Jesus' name. Amen. And he said, I said, what did Allah tell you? He said, one tank. And okay. so we ran behind this tank and wrapped that even though there was a lot of smoke from the Americans, ISIS was shooting everything at us, RPGs, mortars, machine guns. They were bouncing off the tank. I was running behind it. It's kind of like, Imagine going off the top of a roller coaster on purpose and disconnecting the car you're in to start flying through the air. It felt like that, like yeah. we're going to all die. But there's no way to save this kid. And if I was somewhere and someone said, hey, I see your daughter and she's going to be in the next one shot, I'd say, please help her. Even if you die trying, please. That's what I would want. And I prayed and just felt this is our job. If we die, we die. And if I die doing this, my wife and kids won't be ashamed. They'll be sad, but they'll know it's for love. Yeah. So we ran, five of us, behind this tank. And the tank is shooting and getting shot at, but we're running behind it. We get up, the tank stopped, it's shooting, smoke starts to dissipate. We ask for more smoke, there's more smoke. I just pray, Jesus, help me, and ran. Two of my team members, Sky and Ephraim, they start shooting behind the tank to give me covering fire. Monkey, my chaplain um, from Burma, is his name, Monkey, he's filming. We had a Syrian refugee who's there helping us because he's a translator, although there's no talking going on. And I got this girl out um, and didn't get shot. I thought, wow. 
And then we saw there's two wounded men among the dead that were, that were hiding. We got them out. And while that was happening, Ephraim, one of my guys got shot through the leg and he fell down. We lost one of the guys. He was killed. One of the people we rescued and Sky and uh, Mahmoud, the Syrian guy, were helping another wounded guy. I was carrying Demoa, this little girl and Monkey was filming and running and we all kept running, including Ephraim who was shot through the calf behind the tank. The tank is shooting, taking rounds yep. and we get out. And I remember holding that girl in my arms. She's got a mo mother's blood on her thinking, wow, God, thank you. I could be, I'm alive and she's alive. I'm part of life. And I told that little girl in English, which she couldn't understand, if nobody adopts you, we will. But fortunately, General Mustafa, my Iraqi army fan, found her grandmother who was down near Baghdad. And when we met her grandmother, her grandmother said, the day that happened, I didn't know it was happening, but I found out later that was June the 2nd. On June the 2nd, I had a vision that my daughter was dead and my granddaughter was there. And there was all these dead bodies in Mosul somewhere. And there was a putrid evil river running in front of them. But some man in white, a giant, beautiful man dressed in white, stepped across that chasm and rescued my granddaughter. I said, that was Jesus. And Jesus sent us. And as weak and failing as we are, we could do something. And so that little girl's named Demoa, which means tear. And she's now reunited with her grandmother. She doesn't have her mom and dad anymore, but she has a new hope with her grandmother. And when I pray, she also meets Jesus. So that story to me encapsulates um, what we do. And I remember Monkey, the, the, the guy from Burma on the film, he told me later, he said, Dave, I didn't want to go on that mission. I can't believe you led us on that. I kept praying to God we wouldn't do it. And then when you asked for volunteers, I told Zal, the other guy, he volunteers. And then you said, that's not volunteering. And <laughs> so I had to go. I didn't want to go. Yeah. And I was going to die and be pointless. But I finally went. And as I went and we got back and we rescued that girl, I said, God, look what you did. You took me, a person who didn't want to go, who didn't want this thing to even happen, and you let me be part of it. And you let me film it and tell the story. And as weak and as sinful as I am, I get to be part of life, real life. And I think what Monkey said is true of us all at some point. We do things that are selfish or faithless, but God still uses us. God still gives us a second chance. And so I hope one of the messages of that movie, of whatever I say, of this, of this book, is God gives us many, many chances. Don't give up. God has not given up on us. Our thanks again to our guests for being on the show today. Indie Thinker with Reed Uberman was brought to you by our sponsors. If you like what you heard today, please do us a big favor and give it a five-star review and like it and share it with friends. And if you want to hear more awesome guests, make sure to check out past episodes. Indie Thinker is a nonprofit paid for by our sponsors and the generous gifts of people like you. In order to hear more great guests like you did today, please consider giving a tax-deductible gift by going to IndieThinker.org. And just remember, your voice matters, but infinitely more when you think for yourself.